Hello, everyone, and welcome to Then Again at the Northeast Georgia History Center. I'm excited about today's topic. We have back with us Dr. Richard Byers from the University of North Georgia. Welcome with us again, Dr. Byers. Glenn, a pleasure to be with you again, as always. So I wanted to talk about something fun today, and this is going to be somewhat almost buttonholing him just because he has an Australian accent. He knows a lot of things about a lot of different things, but I wanted to talk to him today about the Anzacs of the Great War and and the influence they had, not just on the outcome of the war, really on how Australia and New Zealand view themselves in the larger world context because of their contributions. That sounds good to you? Absolutely, sir. Well, let's start off, and if you would, just sort of define what ANZACs are, what that means. Sure. It's a. Um, it's actually an acronym, as, as with so many things you know, related to the military. It's an acronym that means Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. It was a, it was a combined force that was formed at the beginning of uh, of the First World War. An interesting factoid for uh, for the uh, listeners. Interestingly enough, Australia and New Zealand declared war on Germany before Great Britain did, and this was part of an effort to demonstrate both to Britain, the mother country, and to themselves and their own publics that they were legitimately new and coherent nation states in their own right, and that they were making these declarations of their own free will, and that they were volunteering to not only honor their imperial commitments, but also join a larger fight against what they, you know, sort of framed and argued was an assault on democracy, civilization, and civilized values. And so for, for Australians and New Zealanders of the time, there was a, a significant amount riding on this action and, and these commitments as a means of, of testing the new nations. Could we uh, participate in global affairs in a coherent way and also in a meaningful and influential way? Well, and they, so the war starts in 1914, and they had really only been granted independent status in 08, something like that. Oh, yeah. Now, Ameri- uh, excuse me. Australia becomes independent in uh, 1901. The Federation oh. is formed in 1901. And New Zealand, you know, in de- uh, formal independence from uh, uh, Britain is, is in uh, actually in the 19th century. So they have the uh, constitutional uh, freedom to, to make this choice, but they were not prompted to do so. And Britain did not coerce them to do so. And this, this, makes it a quite an interesting exercise in that they're really the first nation to declare war against the central powers and to take up the cause. And as I said, this is this is something that they're, you know, at the time was very important to particularly the political elites of both New Zealand and Australia, that they take a principled stand and that they do so as a vanguard out ahead of some of the larger powers in the world at the time. You know, those who do know a little bit about the Anzacs know about their involvement in Gallipoli. And I do want to talk a little bit about that, but I also want to get into their presence on the more well-known and more traditional Western Front because they are they're a big deal there too. So so tell us just a little bit about why the Anzacs are the ones who got sent to Gallipoli. Why not someone else? Sure, that's a great question. And it's it's part of a larger sort of uh, dispersal of forces from Australia and New Zealand that began at the beginning of the war and, and then and continued on into early 1915 when the uh, Gallipoli campaign kicked off. Originally, our troops were volunteers only and, and the initial uh, round of, of volunteer uh, enlistment sort of reached an end by late 1914 and it was at that point that the decision was made uh, to, to move towards national conscription for the first time but that was going to re- delay uh, and take a, a quite a bit of time in 1915. They wanted to move as many troops as they could by Christmas 1914 into war zones that they thought would, would be uh, where they would be needed. Powers that be in London in the Imperial, Imperial Command uh, ordered that the uh, Anzac troops 
be deployed into the Middle East and uh, through the Indian Ocean up into the Red Sea and then ultimately up near uh, the uh, Great Pyramids of Cairo in Egypt. We're, uh, you know, tasked with uh, doing some training and getting ready for a, a an, an imminent operation going to take place in the Eastern Mediterranean. And this, of course, ended up being uh, the Gallipoli operation and, and uh, subsequent campaign. Both the New Zealanders and the Australians were, were, were sent to Egypt to train. There was quite a bit of, shall we say, cultural collision uh, <laughs> part of that deployment between the uh, between the mostly you know naive Australian and New Zealand troops, young uh, young men between the ages of 15 and, and and sort of 25. Most of the junior officers were in their early 20s. There were a few of the other officers who were a little older, but most people had not been out of Australia or, or seen the Middle East before. And they ran headlong into an Egyptian culture in the early 20th century that was itself in the process of pretty drastic change. It was still part of the British Empire, but British Egyptian nationalist aspirations had arisen uh, and there were there were all sorts of other currents uh, cursing through Egypt at the time, Ottoman agents, uh, various other forces associated with the uh, dawn of, of a sort of Islamic uh, religious ideas and thinking as well. So uh, that, that prompted a little bit of problems with discipline. There were a number of incidents where there were problems associated with um, uh, miscommunications about trading and dealing and and there were also problems associated with excessive drinking. The Australian and New Zealand troops were famous uh, for their ability to consume, particularly, you know, beer and spirit or liquor, as we uh, as we call it here in the United States. And this was often at odds with the quite conservative social attitudes of, of many Egyptians. As devout Muslims, they were not, alcohol was forbidden. Uh, they, they did not drink themselves. And so when they saw inebriated Australian and, and New Zealand soldiers, you know, staggering out into their streets and, and generally causing a lot of problems, they complained, of course, to the British authorities authorities and in many cases the British authorities agreed with the Egyptians and cracked down very hard <laughs> on the Australian and New Zealand troops and this didn't do much for uh, imperial relations I must say uh, <laughs> uh, if you if you've ever seen any of the cinematic portrayals of this period there's there's a movie called the light horseman actually it's an Australian film which which looks at the cavalry uh, and its history in in this period and also after it gets sent to Gallipoli uh, it, it, it portrays this and, and and describes this you hit you see it in the memoirs uh, uh, there was uh, there was quite a bit of uh, carrying on that took place, but eventually, of course, Gallipoli was on the horizon, and troops were sent onto the onto the troop ships and uh, sent off to uh, to that fairly inhospitable uh, part of the uh, Turkish peninsula, uh, which had not been all that well uh, scouted. Landing and logistical plans were, were not all that well prepared for, shall we say? When they when they arrived there, they realised there are a number of shoals and reefs near those landing beaches, which made landing difficult, and also they realised that uh, some some of the cliffs they thought had been further back from the beaches based on their earlier intelligence were in fact much steeper and were going to be much more challenging to uh, to gain control of than anyone had anticipated. And so right from the outset campaign there was plagued by uh, poor intelligence. Uh, there was a lot of overestimation of the Allied capability and underestimation of uh, the Ottoman Turkish capability, uh, which also proved to be uh, in error proved to be wrong. The Turks proved extremely capable defenders of their own territory uh, and also proved very fast learners and adapted well to the changing conditions uh, of uh, of the campaign there in Gallipoli as it uh, as it ground on for month after terrible month. There were some troops who spent months uh, on the peninsula. Conditions were dreadful. Um, there was, a, a, as I said, a terrible supply problem, which meant that there were always shortages of food and water. There were no naturally occurring water sources on the Gallipoli Peninsula, which meant that you were often faced into a situation of very strong dry heat and uh, no no access to hydration. So the, the, the suffering on on all sides, terrible. Uh, 
um, all of the troops' memoirs describe terrible thirst and also the terrible hunger that the troops endured as, as part of that campaign. Even though the weather itself was not uh, as extreme as other campaigns in other places, the suffering uh, as, a, as a result of the particular circumstances where it was fought uh, made it every bit as harrowing uh, and every bit as, uh, as debilitating as anything anywhere else in the war. You know, of course, they're, they're eventually forced to withdraw. The, the, you know, the Gallipoli folks, the Gallipoli campaign was supposed to be a great day for the Navy to sail through the Straits. They chickened out. It didn't work out. So they had to send in land forces. They sent in the Anzacs. And then the Anzacs eventually have to have to withdraw. And even though it's a both a strategic and a tactical defeat in a way, Dr. Byers, don't the Australians and the New Zealanders come away with it, an incredible sense of pride and accomplishment and what they'd have been able to stand up to? Yes. No. No, it, it, it's it's reframed. The, the the events of the of the campaign are, are negative, but it, it it's reframed in in a in a uh, way that uh, extols this idea of of uh, resilience and and collective endurance, particularly in the face of of, of really extreme suffering. And the, the the concept of mateship, which is something that is still seen as central to the idea today of, of Australian identity, this this. this profoundly you know strong male bonding experience generally in a harsh environment you know over an extended period of time um the these ideas and 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 then these 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 sort of constructions are still very much part of modern australian identity these these things as a collective were forged in gallipoli and the soldiers who had been there all very much uh, enunciated this when they returned those who survived Many did not, of course, and of course, the, the the memoirs and the and the recollections that came out of that experience both celebrated those who didn't survive as the true heroes, but also made the argument that anybody who endured and anyone who suffered and and helped their fellow, you know, their, their fellow man, uh, you know, get through that process were, was bonded for life, and it and it created a bond. It's in some ways more close than than the family relations or or even blood. Having gone through something like that and overcome it was in itself a victory. Wow. So the, the Anzacs go through this terrible experience. It's draining in, in emotion and soul and, and numbers. So they, they pull them out and they, they put them somewhere soft and easy for the rest of the war, right? <laughs> yeah, if only that had been the case, uh, Glenn. <laughs> no, um, as the Gallipoli campaign winds down and comes to an end, the, the needs of uh, the troop needs and demands on the main front in Western Europe are perhaps their most intense. It's late 1915, early 1916. British and French are both under a enormous pressure having failed to achieve much success in breaking the static deadlock uh, that, had, that had formed on the Western Front by the end of 1914 and in fact had suffered a series of quite debilitating losses owing to a number of unsuccessful attempts, uh, offensive attempts to breach the German defensive positions. The Germans had constructed after their initial assault, of course, an attempt to win the war quickly at the beginning in 1914 had failed, the Germans had very effectively retreated to a series of geologically and geographically superior defensive positions, stretching all the way along that nearly 400 miles of the Western Front of World War I. And, and they had dug in in those positions and built tremendously uh, effective and successful fortifications and buried dugout that British and French artillery could not reach uh, and, could not, and could not destroy. And this had meant that, as I said, the stalemate had, had really worn down manpower uh, amongst the Western allies. So much so that the exhausted troops of Gallipoli were sent immediately from that campaign to plug gap in the defensive perimeter of uh, of the Allied Western Front and then would spend the, net, the remainder of the war, in fact, until its end in November 1918, fighting up and down along the line 
of the Western Front, often sort of French-controlled positions or adjacent to French-controlled positions, often as part of a larger sort of coalition imperial, you know, sort of British-led imperial force, uh, and often on their own. After 1917, uh, uh, the commanding general of uh, the Australian Infantry Forces, as it was known by then, the AIF, uh, a man named General John Monash, had managed to uh, achieve operational independence by that point. Uh, his British superiors trusted him so much that they allowed him to carry out independent operations uh, on the points of the line where the Australians were the uh, preponderant force. And we uh, and our New Zealand comrades were uh, deployed often in the most dangerous places, often in the areas where there was the most concern uh, that there could be a breach in the line. And that meant that uh, we uh, we took uh, proportionally very high casualties, you know, in terms of those in terms of losses. And this was something that uh, you, you really get a great sense of if you travel to the regions today of northern and northwestern France, uh, where many of those, you know, brutal battles uh, of the uh, First World War took place. Uh, there are many, many uh, Australian war memorial cemeteries uh, throughout that part of France that are still uh, beautifully tended to today uh, by local French communities, all of whom are still honour and celebrate the role played by the uh, New Zealanders and Australians in uh, fighting for and ultimately achieving, uh, you know, French freedom and, uh, and liberation from German occupation. Well, they definitely built up a reputation for vitality and they became sort of the go-to plug the whole firemen on the Western Front, but they also garnered a reputation amongst the Germans, correct? Yes, that's true. Um, some of this had to do with the fact that you know, in terms of physiological comparison, many of the young men who, who came from, you know, Oceania, Australia and New Zealand were were, were larger and physically uh, more capable uh, than their British and, and, and French and other European uh, counterparts. And, 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 and this, had, you know, this did, was something that was, you know, quite, uh, quite obvious in many cases uh, to, uh, to, to both those on our side and, and those on the other side. Uh, in other words, the Australians were in many cases bigger and stronger. Uh, and uh, and and were able to match some of the bigger and stronger, you know, Germans in terms of physiology. Uh, and uh, this was something that surprised the Germans. They were they were not expecting this. Uh, met, they were not aware of of what had been happening in Oceania over the, the previous uh, several decades. Their their attention had been focused on their colonies in New Guinea in the Western Pacific, and so they weren't too aware of what had been happening in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and so it was a similar reaction uh, to when large numbers of US troops begin arriving uh, on the Western Front uh, in early 1918. The Germans have a similar reaction. Uh, the, the Americans are physically larger uh, than the European soldiers and, uh, and are seen as you know, more dangerous because of their, uh, because of their, uh, their, their physiological capability. And yeah, they're, just, they're super tough. And so, like you said, the Australians go and they, they help win the victory. Um, for the Entente and its co-belligerence, as the Americans like to call themselves. Um, and then, you know, finally, after the victory, they're able to go back home. Uh, and it sort of starts that, that myth of what it means to be an Australian, sort of their, I don't want to say it's their Revolutionary War, that's not quite right, but it's, it's let's say it's their foundational war. <laughs> every, yeah. every country has to have a foundational war. And the Great War was Australia's. And, you know, in the process of that, they not only defined 
a large part of Australia, but they also took home some really cool war trophies, what I think is probably the coolest war trophy in all of military history, which is, of course, the German Mephisto tank. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the only one it. left, folks, and the Australians got it and drug it across the ocean, and there it sits in the Australian War Memorial. Yes, there are many uh, interesting uh, objects on display these days at the uh, at the War Memorial in Canberra. If you go to our capital city these days, you will find it there. Uh, it's recently been renovated and upgraded, actually. Uh, and hopefully with international travel resuming later this year, there'll be an opportunity for some of your listeners perhaps to, to take the plunge and, you know, uh, zoom down under, you know, on the other side of the world and perhaps go visit place and go see the tank for themselves. But uh, no, it was it was a, a complex process of, uh, of you know, sort of re-engagement for many of the veterans. Because of the huge geographic distances involved, most of them had not returned home at all throughout the entire time that the war had raged. Uh, when they had had leave, they had taken leave in England or, or France or, or in Egypt, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, some other area of the Middle East. And this meant that they had changed tremendously. Most of them were at least four years older than they had been when they had left or, you know, something like that. They had seen all sorts of uh, and experienced all sorts of of terrible horrors uh, that that most of them, of course, felt in that day and time they could never share with civilians. A, because civilians had never experienced anything like this, this gore, gruesome, horrific, extreme, bloody, uh, violent, uh, you know, they there was no way for civilians to relate on any level to to these types of of, of wartime traumas. And also because when they did return and and, uh, after many months of return travel, I might add, it took about four months in those days for most troops to return by sea. By the time they did uh, arrive back on Australian shores, uh, the civilian population had moved on from the war. It had been so long since the war had ended that that people had decided already that uh, it was in the rearview mirror. And veterans felt very uh, connected from, uh, from interwar Australian society. This helps explain the origins of the development of uh, Anzac Day commemorations, interestingly enough. This this process of disconnection motivated veterans to band together and form veterans groups, like you have here, of course, the American Legion, other groups like that. These these groups came to be known as, as the Returned Service League, or RSL. Uh, they began to uh, form, uh, as I said, associations. They purchased property with uh, with a lot of their uh, military pay and established RSL you know, offices where where, uh, you know, they and, and uh, you know, other veterans like themselves could come uh, and, and sort of engage with each other together in a, in, a, in a place where they knew they would be understood and where they knew they talked to other people about what had happened and it, they had experienced and they would be listened to and they would be respected. In time, the RSL became sort of a bit of a fixture of, of most Australian cities and towns. You can, you can still see them today. They nearly died out at the beginning of the 21st century, but they were then revived as a result of Australia's ongoing role in, uh, in war wars in uh, you know the Middle East and uh, and Central Asia and Southwest Asia. Uh, it, it did. It developed an entirely new type of community, a, a new type of veterans and, and, and commemorative community that in time attracted enough public interest and attention, especially after the Second World War, when far larger numbers of Australians once again were, were uh, you know, called to serve and, and did serve all uh, across the world again. Uh, it, it did lead to the, to the realisation that what had happened in the First World War had, had been tremendously significant and important and, and needed to be, you know, passed on to uh, future generations of, uh, of the 
the country. So they understood the the, the, the sacrifices that had been made, why they had been made, and 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 why they were uh, so important and relevant and necessary. And out of this came uh, the official decision to formulate uh, the day of the year as Anzac Day. The day is April the 25th. And every April the 25th in both Australia and New Zealand, it is a public holiday. Uh, people don't work and there are marches and commemorations associated with the veterans organizations and also these days relatives and descendants of veterans also mm-hmm. marching in celebration and there's a, there's a great deal of uh, as i said public fanfare paid uh, to this and it is it is uh, largely a as i said a, a positive day that uh, most australians celebrate and as another friend of mine said it's the day that australia puts waltzing matilda on loop for 24 hours yeah <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> it's been interesting in uh, in the last ten years. There's been a notable evolution of the of the uh, events themselves, and sort of a broadening of 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 inclusion in terms of the folks who are now being recognised as as contributors. Once upon a time, of course, that it was only active duty soldiers. Today, it's been extended out to folks who serve also in in the uh, army reserve, and as I said, descendants and relatives of those who are uh, who served and, and who are on active duty. Also, of course, um, the folks now from Australia's Aboriginal community uh, who served uh, uh, both in uniform and in, uh, and as auxiliaries, both in the First and Second World Wars. For uh, Up until recently, they did not march as part of the uh, Anzac Day celebration. They now do. Islander peoples also who also served in these roles in the First and Second World Wars who had not done so until recently they now also march in the Anzac Day procession and also all of the folks associated with nursing staff and you know the many thousands of young women who uh, who also uh, you know volunteered and served in these theatres of war uh, you know as as nurses as uh, as caregivers they and their descendants also now march in the Anzac Day parades uh, and so there's there's as I said it's a much broader uh, sort of commemoration and event these days than it once was it was once fairly narrowly militarily defined now it's seen as a much larger sort of event that that involves so many parts of the community and and these parts of the community are still so important to us today as as we've seen in the last few years fantastic they, that is so cool that they have expanded that out and unfortunately we are running out of time folks that's just a taste of australia and new zealand's efforts in the great war and beyond and what it means to them if you want to learn more about this get with me and we will get tickets to go see the australian war memorial just as soon as they are taking outside visitors so call the history center and we'll <laughs> we'll get dr byers to take us on a grand tour sounds like a lot of fun <laughs> all right dr byers thank you so much for joining us always a pleasure and uh, we hope to see you again soon thank you for having me glenn talk absolutely. to you all very soon absolutely folks that's uh that's going to be it for today on then again we hope to see you again soon here but until then stay safe and take care then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.